Dear Mr. Chairman and Commissioners, America's greatness depends on a reliable, resilient electric grid powered by an all-of-the-above mix of generation resources. This diverse mix of resources must include traditional baseload generation with on-site fuel storage that can withstand major fuel supply disruption caused by natural and man-made disasters. But the resiliency of the electric grid is threatened by the premature retirements of these fuel-secure, traditional baseload resources. Thus begins a letter sent on Friday by Secretary of Energy Rick Perry to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. The letter extends this presidential administration's seeming endless focus on reliability and resiliency on the grid, which we've talked about before, by directing FERC to take up a rule that would essentially guarantee sufficient revenue to certain power plants, largely nuclear, hydropower, and coal, as long as they meet certain resiliency criteria. This could be a very big deal in electricity. Morgan Stanley this morning said it would bring an end to competitive power markets. Some others, including Travis Kavula, who's the former chairman of NARUC, the National Association of Regulatory Commissioners, and is a current commissioner in the state of Montana, uh, said that this would be the biggest change to electricity market regulation in decades. But let's be clear, this is not a normal rule, and it is not at all clear how and even if this will be enacted. So what the hell is going on? This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from GTM. I'm Stephen Lacey. Wait, that's not right. I'm Shale Khan. GTM Senior Vice President and Head of GTM Research, Stephen is off for the next couple of weeks getting married, so everyone please congratulate him on Twitter. But while Stephen's off uh, having his nuptials and living in eternal bliss, we are not deserting you. Um, we are pleased to have a show for you this week uh, talking about this crazy rule that the DOE released on Friday and we'll also be on next week with an event that we recorded a couple of weeks ago that I'm really excited about. We'll take one week off and then we'll be back once Stephen has returned and the honeymoon period hopefully continues. So for the purposes of talking today about this note that came out from Secretary Perry and the notice of proposed rulemaking that came along with it, I'm really pleased to have with me Ari Pesco. Ari is a senior fellow in electricity law at Harvard, more specifically at the Harvard Environmental Policy Initiative. And Ari also has a background um, litigating at FERC with a law firm. So he knows what he's talking about, and he's going to help us illuminate what's going on here. Ari, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start by just offering the basics. And does this normally happen with between DOE and FERC? So this is very unusual. Um, what DOE says it did was that it proposed a rule under the Federal Power Act. And the Federal Power Act is the law that gives FERC authority to regulate electricity sales, wholesale electricity sales and electricity markets. Um, the Department of Energy, when it was created by Congress in 1977, was given the authority to actually step into the shoes of FERC and propose a rule that normally is the type that FERC would propose. So that's what DOE says it's done here. Um, and only FERC can actually finalize this rule, but DOE actually does have legal authority to propose a rule that applies to electricity markets and electricity pricing. 
Right. Uh, so we, we've seen proposed rules come from FERC before. A lot of people who listen to this may be familiar with the proposed rulemaking that came out of FERC late last year about energy storage. It was the NOPER that everyone talks about in energy storage. But normally those rules come or those proposed rules, rather, they come directly from FERC. So this is DOE offering that rule on behalf of FERC in theory. That's right. And, you know, what what sort of makes this particularly unusual is that DOE's document, which again, they call a notice of proposed rulemaking, really looks nothing like a notice of proposed rulemaking that FERC would normally issue. Um, The content of it is uh, so flimsy and vague as compared to what FERC would normally propose. And so that's part of what makes it difficult to talk about this is because what they issued uh, both procedurally is unusual and that it's coming from the Department of Energy and not FERC and substantively uh, just really doesn't look like what we're normally used to seeing in this context. Right. So I want to get back to both the substance and the procedure here to just try to figure out what's going to come out of it. But First, let's just talk about whether this is a normal thing to see. I mean, DOE has had this ability to step into FERC's shoes since you said the the formation of the Department of Energy in the late 70s. Is it often used? No, it's very rarely used. Um, And it's interesting that in in the notice, uh, the Department of Energy cites its usage from 1979, which I had assumed was their most recent use of this authority, but I'll give some credit to Joel Eisen at the University of, of Richmond Law School, who did the research on this and found that it appears that about 1986 is the last time this was invoked. So it really hasn't been used in, in 30 years. Given that, I mean, do you have a sense of why it hasn't been used in 30 years? Is, is it generally that DOE doesn't want to overstep its bounds or is it that uh, you know, there's just no need typically. I, I think I would say there's no need. I mean, it, FERC is different from a lot of other uh, federal agencies in that it's um, independent of political control in a lot of ways. Um, whereas, you know, Rick Perry is, is appointed by the president to run the Department of Energy and he can be fired by the president tomorrow. And essentially Department of Energy, EPA, Department of Treasury, many of the other agencies that we're familiar with uh, are really executing the policy of the administration. FERC is different, along with some of the other commissions at the federal level. Um, they're, they're not taking instructions uh, from from the administration, from the White House. They're, you know, they have uh, constraints in what they can do that are defined by law, and they have an independent, supposedly independent commission uh, that's that's uh, executing the law. And um, it's it's very unusual for uh, that to get political in exactly this way. Of course, you know, things are political in different ways. There's all sorts of political pressures on FERC from various uh, industry participants, from people in con- Congress, et cetera. But for the administration to really directly put their thumb on the scale of what FERC is doing is is very unusual. Okay. So we have this really unusual mechanism. Let's talk about what's actually intended here. Um, what basically is DOE asking FERC to do? Yeah, so there's basically two critical parts of this document. Um, One is defining what grid reliability and resiliency resources are. So what those are, are um, power plants that have at least a 90-day fuel supply on site, and they are not regulated under a state uh, cost of service rate making regime. Uh, So these are power plants that are getting their revenue through the competitive wholesale markets that FERC administers. So that's the first part of it, defining these resources. And the second part of it is that defining this special rate that these resources are going to be eligible for. And here's where the proposal gets um, pretty vague. 
um, where it says, it, it sort of suggests that these resources are going to be taken outside of the competitive market construct and are now going to be compensated based on cost of service rate making principles, uh, where the regulator looks at how much it costs to generate energy and sort of uh, allows the resource to recover their costs plus earn a return on equity, which is totally contrary to the market principles. But the proposal is written in such a way that you can interpret it in several different ways as well. Um, and so that's why it's difficult to say exactly what the proposal is because there's very little detail provided here. So effectively, it seems like what the DOE wants is it wants FERC to sort of change the the rules of the wholesale markets so that those resources would basically be guaranteed to earn a profit. There's no world in which those resources start losing money again, which we've talked about before has been an issue. A lot of these baseload resources are out of the money in, in today's wholesale markets. That does appear to be the intent um, is to make sure that these uh, resources can can profit, which is you know really puts them again out totally outside of a market construct where resources are competing and aren't really guaranteed anything. Um, and I, I just want to comment also on the way that you phrase this about how sort of what DOE is 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 hoping that FERC will do. Um, you know, it gets to the ambiguity of what this document actually is. You know, the Department of Energy. Uh, asserts that this is a proposed rule that then FERC can finalize into a, a final rule. Uh, but it also really reads more like a directive to FERC, that we want FERC to create this rule, which is which is different from a proposed rule. It almost suggests that FERC itself should propose this and then finalize it. Um, and, and DOE doesn't really, or I should say rather FERC, doesn't really have to follow a directive from the Department of Energy. So it could almost treat this like a suggestion just because of how vague it's written. Hmm. And do we have any suspicions given the new commissioners at FERC, um, whether they, I mean, it sounds like you're saying if FERC wanted to, it could basically just ignore this, but do we have any sense of whether they will? Yeah. So it's difficult to, to I think it, politically, it seems like it would be difficult to just ignore it. I think um, as a matter of, of law, I think they could treat it as just a public comment um, rather than a proposed rule and deal with it the way they treat any other public comment. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of the, of the current commissioners, we have two new commissioners that were recently confirmed. The chairman is Neil Chatterjee, uh, who is a former, uh, aide to Mitch McConnell. And right after his confirmation, he, uh, made some comments that raised a lot of eyebrows about how he being from Kentucky, he recognized the importance of coal. And, um, you know, that, that sort of comment, uh, is really contrary to how FERC has approached market regulation for the past 20 years, um, where FERC hasn't uh, chosen specific fuels over another. Um, they've really more tried to level the playing field for all resources. Um, and so singling out the value of coal to the grid was sort of a, I think, um, you know, just was sort of an odd thing for a new FERC chairman to say. So perhaps he is inclined to go down this road, um, but I think uh, this this document from DOE um, is a uh, is it really is a, is a is a really rough rough starting point for him. One of the things in both the the notice of proposed rulemaking and in Secretary Perry's letter that to me seemed contradictory, even within the document, was it mentions that this is part of an all of the above strategy a number of times. People use love using that expression, um, but yet it it really is designed to support a pretty specific set of resources. So the basically the, the broad strokes 
criteria that a resource would have to meet in order to essentially be guaranteed a profit under this rule would be that it, it one, has to be able to offer ancillary services to the grid. And then two, I think the more important one has to have a 90 day supply of fuel on hand. Um, can you talk a little bit about, first of all, what resources might qualify for that? And second, does that make any sense? Is a 90 day supply based in some kind of logic? Yeah. So let me start with a 90 day supply issue because it's a really good example of the lack of detail and rationale um, in this document. Because in a normal rulemaking, uh, if there were such a requirement for a 90 day supply, there'd be all sorts of analysis that goes with it as to why the agency chose a 90 day supply and how that that requirement actually helps them achieve the goals that they're trying to achieve. And here, the different parts of this document are just disconnected from each other. Um, it, 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 you know, DOE asserts that that the resilience attributes of generation are undervalued in the markets, and then jumps to the conclusion that we need a special rate for resources that have 90-day fuel supplies on hand, but really fails to make several logical steps in between to connect the initial assertion with its conclusion. Um, so there really is no explanation for the 90-day requirement. It does appear that this um, would apply to nuclear units, um, some coal units, although EIA keeps keeps track of the fuel supply, um, and it seems like not all coal units would qualify, although perhaps this would incentivize units to have larger coal piles um, so that they could qualify. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the reporting on this since Friday has largely been, this would be, this would be directed largely at hydropower, which can offer a 90 day fuel supply nuclear, which pretty much inherently has a 90 day fuel supply. And then coal, if the coal plant stockpiles enough to get a 90 day fuel supply. So the idea behind this being those three resources are the ones that can offer reliability and resiliency. Um, but, you know, we talked about before on this podcast, when we were talking about the DOE grid reliability study, which this sort of seems to have come out of, uh, the fact that there are a bunch of other resources that can offer reliability and resiliency too. Is there any obligation for either the Department of Energy or FERC to consider all resources that could offer some form of resiliency? Or are they allowed to say, no, this is our definition, and so anything that meets this definition is is what really is reliable? So FERC rules have to be non-discriminatory. That's a really fundamental premise um, that FERC operates under. You know, this does uh, put the thumb on the scale for these resources that have this 90-day fuel supply. By itself, that's not necessarily a problem. Um, by law, FERC can't be unduly discriminate, discriminatory, but it can discriminate if there's some valid purpose for the discrimination. Um, you know, I, I think, again, just, just looking at this, you know, 19-page document that DOE put out, there's really, as I mentioned, really no rationale uh, explained for why this 90-day fuel supply is the critical factor and why there shouldn't be other attributes that matter. Um, so I, I think it's it's um it's 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 really it gets again to this point of this document being very flimsy and not really uh, having sort of a logical progression from its problem statement to the uh, solution that it proposes. Let's just spend a minute speculating on what this might mean for the market, assuming that there was a way FERC could actually implement it. Um, so you'd have you have all these 
generation resources in the, in the wholesale markets. Let's just focus on coal for a minute. So there's all these coal plants that are out of the money right now that are retiring early, many of them. If FERC implemented these rules and, and the all the independent system operators had had tariffs that guaranteed cost recovery for a plant that met these requirements, would just every coal generator stock up 90 days and immediately become profitable? I mean, would this save coal in the US? So first of all, this doesn't apply to every coal plant. It only applies to the coal plants that are in these market regions and also that are not uh, subject to cost of service regulation under under a state uh, rate making regime. So in other words, they're not owned by a vertically integrated utility. Um, so this really applies to the the merchant coal plants and then again, as you say, only if they have a 90-day fuel supply. So it seems to me that you'd want to get this guaranteed cost recovery, and it would provide this incentive to stock up on coal. And again, how you know what are the what exactly is this preparing the grid for? What sort of emergency is a 90-day pile of coal um, helping to alleviate? And that really isn't explored in this document. But I, I, I agree with your premise that if this went forward. Um, that's the incentive it would be it would provide would be to purchase more coal, um, which of course is good for coal companies. Um, the only caveat to all this is that I'm not a hundred percent sure that the definition in this DOE proposal of the reliability and resiliency rate necessarily means this sort of cost of service type rate making, um, because what the proposal says is that the price for these units should ensure that each eligible resource is fully compensated for the benefits and services it provides. So being compensated for benefits and services is different from cost of service. Um, Compensation for benefits and services almost sounds like a sort of value of coal tariff. Um, If you think about the sort of value of solar tariffs that some states have have implemented or thought about. Um, And so that suggests something different. Um, Another way to potentially look at this um, which is the direction that I thought FERC might go down the line, is actually creating new markets for these resilience attributes, whatever those might be. They're ill-defined in this proposal. But you can imagine a more specific proposal that that precisely defines what it is the resili- are the resilience attributes that the grid really needs, and then proceeding from there to create a market for those attributes. Now, now you know, creating a market for resilience attributes, that sounds somewhat reasonable and i think was was perhaps what some folks expected to come out after that that doe grid study was released but to me that seems substantively different from what's in this doe proposal which specifically says that the the isos must establish tariffs that allow for the recovery of costs and a return on equity for these resources. So, you know, you can introduce a market for resilience. That doesn't guarantee a profit to a coal plant, but it seems like what DOE wants to do here is guarantee a profit to a coal plant, again, along as long as it's it's a, a plant in the right place that has the right stockpile. Right. I mean, look, I think I'm interpreting uh, the document generously with that reading of it, um, that it might allow for a more market-based mechanism, um, but there is that guarantee. So you'd have to design a market that then guarantees a profit, which is sort of anti-market. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, this is, I think we have to, if, if this is going to actually, if this document issued by DOE last week is actually going to form the basis of a final rule, you have to read it very generously 
um, because otherwise it just doesn't stand up. There's just way too many holes, both substantively and legally, that the only way this can possibly hold up is if you really read it uh, very generously with a lot of uh, implications read into it. So this would almost inherently raise electricity prices for customers, right? You're you're guaranteeing some additional value to existing resources, especially if you're guaranteeing a profit to resources that would otherwise be unprofitable in the market. This necessarily props up prices. Is that right? It sounds like it would do that in the short term. I think the, the what the, what I'm guessing the counterpoint will be to that, and DOE kind of hints at this in the document, is that in the long run, these resources are necessary to maintain uh, you know, reasonable prices for consumers. So, uh, I mean, you know, it seems like though in the, in the short term, this is gonna, this is gonna raise rates. Right. Okay. So that's what the substance is, at least to the extent that there is substance. Let's talk about the process and the legality here. You've already alluded to a few sort of concerns about how, and if this could be implemented, let's start with a timeline. What is that timeline? And what does that mean in terms of the ability to implement this? Yeah, so the timeline is, I think, practically and legally impossible. Um, they would like a final rule from FERC, I believe, in 60 days. So they'd have a 45-day public comment period, as I understand it. And then somehow in, in a 15-day period, uh, FERC would have to read all of the comments, which are going to be uh, numerous and from a diverse uh diverse group of market participants and other interests here. Um, and they're going to have to account for those comments and then issue a final rule and do that in two weeks, uh, which seems essentially impossible. What's um, a normal timeline for FERC to get something like this done? Like, I just want to compare the 60 days to whatever's typical. Sh- sure. So in a, in a normal um, rule that affects wholesale markets, um, Typically, the comment period will be initially set at 60 days, and then often uh, market participants will come and ask FERC for an extension, which FERC normally grants. Um, And then um, once comments are in, it can be anywhere from three to six months or even longer before FERC issues a final rule. Just to give you a sense for the demand response pricing rule, uh, which is a rule that FERC issued, I believe, in 2010 that was about pricing of demand response resources in energy markets that ultimately was upheld by the Supreme Court. Um, there was something like a six-month comment period that included a technical conference um, as well as an additional round of comments uh, following you know, the first round of comments. So there was a very long comment period, and then I think once the comments were due, FERC took something, I don't remember the exact number, but it's four to six months to then issue the final rule. Um, so here, all that's supposed to happen within 60 days. Right, which seems crazy. So why do we think DOE is trying to get it done so fast? Is this a, is this a mechanism to just ram it through without allowing for uh, you know, folks to have the time to point out all the issues that you've raised and others? Is there, is there any reason why it would make sense to do it so quickly? They is cert- it because so many coal plants are just about to go under? They certainly don't make the factual case for why this needs to happen so fast. Um, I think to me, it speaks to the lack of consultation with FERC on this. I think there's a couple of, of, of issues with this, uh, with this document that really highlight the fact this is something that DOE did on its own, um, without seriously getting input from FERC. Yeah, it sort of sounds similar to a bunch of other things that have happened in this administration, not to draw too flimsy a parallel, but 
you know, it seems to have not been particularly well thought out as it was written. DOE could have taken more time and issued a notice of proposed rulemaking that actually looked like a proposed rule so that FERC could take comments on it immediately. They could have given more time, you know, operated within the normal procedures, but tried to end up at the same place that they're ending up here. Do you think it's just lack of coordination that's causing this to be so abnormal and potentially impossible to implement? Is it, uh, you know, something more, let me try that again. Is it, is it just lack of understanding of how these processes work or is there something else going on here? Yeah, it's hard for me to get behind the curtain at DOE and see exactly what's going on here. I mean, to me, just as a factual matter, uh, there's no way that they accounted for any input from FERC on this timeline. Um, whether there was, um, you know, I, I don't know what the reason for that might have been. I, I, I should say one more thing on the timeline, which is that once FERC issues the final rule, uh, then the the market operators, the RTOs and ISOs, will then have to uh, develop compliance filings that actually um, include the very specific tariff provisions that implement the final rule. And this is this is how these rules normally work. Um, FERC issues a final rule, then the RTOs actually go and implement them. And then FERC ultimately has to decide whether the RTOs compliance filings meet the requirements of the rule. And you know, th- this can involve stakeholder processes at the RTOs that are very complex, different for each market. Um, and obviously, there's a lot um, at stake in these RTOs and a lot of different interests represented there. And the DOE timeline imagines that this is going to happen in two weeks, um, which is also, you know, totally unrealistic. So given that that timeline seems pretty impossible, do you think it's just more likely that if this process kicks off, there'll just be a series of extensions and it'll, it can still happen. It'll just happen over a longer time frame than DOE proposed, or does the timeline make the whole thing untenable? So I don't think the timeline makes the whole thing untenable. At this point, the ball is in FERC's court, and FERC has um, a couple options it could take. And I think really, um, you know, it has to remedy both this timing deficiency um, as well as I see a couple of legal deficiencies as well, as well that need to be immediately addressed or else this whole thing falls apart. Yeah, so let's talk about those in as much layman terms as you can offer. Where are the legal holes here? So... FERC has authority to order the RTOs to change their tariffs, change the market rules. That's essentially what this rulemaking is about, and there's no question that that FERC can order them to do so. But before it, it does that, it has to conclude that the current tariffs, the current market rules, are resulting in rates that are not just and reasonable. That's Those are the key words in the Federal Power Act. Um, and so this document from DOE doesn't include that proposed finding. It doesn't make... Um, any sort of uh, case that current rates are not just and reasonable. And so um, as I see it, the, the, because it's not in the proposal, it, it can't be finalized either. Um, and so FERC would have to issue some sort of notice in the interim explaining why current tariffs are not just and reasonable, which will then give it the authority to order the market operators to change their tariffs. So that's missing right now. And so um, FERC is going to have to do something about that. Um, the second issue is just, again, it gets to this larger issue of just how flimsy this document is and how it really doesn't have um, a lot of factual basis for reaching its proposed solution. And its proposed solution uh, is just devoid of, of just really any detail, um, as well as just there's just no explanation for how this special rate for these resources would interact with the rest of the market. It, it raises so many questions fundamentally about how the markets are going to work going forward. And so, 
you know, there's just sort of a general principle um, that applies to how federal agencies operate that says when they issue a proposed rule, it has to provide a basis for meaningful comment from the public. And this is, there's just so little in here that I think you could make the case that it just doesn't provide for meaningful comment. Um, you really just have to be, it, FERC normally is just so much more specific, um, so much more direct in its proposed rules. Um, this looks um, really, as I said, it reads almost like a directive, which is different from a proposed rule. So I think FERC is going to have to address the total lack of detail in, in this document as well. So let's just play it forward then. So imagine that FERC, you know, especially with the, the new chairman, Neil Chatterjee, seemingly on board in principle with with what at least DOH seems to be trying to do here to to save these baseload resources, the coal and the nuclear, um, and to do so under the guise of, of reliability and resiliency. Assume that he wants to move forward with that and that the commission's on board. So let's just say that they, they push out the timeline, they issue, you know, they, they sort of turn this into a more standard looking notice of proposed rulemaking that they then do take a big comment period on, um, you know, how much does the comment period matter in terms of what FERC ultimately decides? Will the comments make a big difference or will FERC basically just end up doing what the commissioners want? So at the end of the day, um, you know, the FERC commissioners get to decide what happens on this issue. They will ultimately vote on a final rule. Um, and at that point, if, if, if market participants, environmental advocates, and others are not satisfied with the final rule, they can then take the issue to federal court. Um, federal courts uh, defer, have a, have a long history of deferring to FERC's conclusions on technical issues, on policy issues, and on rate-making issues. Um, and that's really the right result in general because you don't want you know, a federal court that deals with all sorts of legal issues to be second-guessing FERC's technical judgments on what a just and reasonable rate is. So you know, once this issue makes it out of FERC, really the only way to beat FERC in court is to beat them on procedural issues. So for example, to say the issues that I raised earlier, that the proposal itself was not a proper foundation for the final rule would be one example. There's some other legal issues as well. For example, whether or not this proposal by putting the thumb on its scale of rather the proposal by putting its thumb on the scale for these fuel secure resources um, is actually unduly discriminating against other resources and therefore violates the law. So you'd have to really look for specific legal reasons. It's tough to get a court to tell, uh, to overturn FERC on, on its own uh, policy judgments. How much does the politics of this matter? I mean, this is a weird issue in that basically this is, this is, this would be it at least seemed to be FERC putting its thumb on the scale in a way that is like very big government regulation oriented, sort of goes against the free market principles that the wholesale markets were based on in saying, basically guaranteeing cost recovery for some specific subset of plants. They'd be doing it because they're saying that this is required for reliability. But nonetheless, at least the comments that I've seen thus far from conservatives are almost uniformly negative about this proposal. Actually, my favorite, again, was from Travis Cavula, who um, is a is a Republican and uh, commissioner in Montana, former head of NARUC. And he said, this is sort of the, the, this reform is the Department of Energy equivalent of the Oprah, you get a car and you get a car and you a car approach. You know, so does the politics of this matter at all? Or because this sort of lies outside the political realm, once it hits FERC, it's not important. Yeah, so I think that the politics always matter, but I think your question gets to the idea 
uh, again, how flimsy this proposal is, because as you mentioned, it is a complete 180 from the past 20 plus years of FERC uh, creating these markets and developing these markets. And this seems to just be a total retreat from from market-based principles. And so, I mean, really, if, you know, for the last 20 years, FERC has been consistent in saying that uh, just and reasonable rates um, are premised on competitive outcomes. Um, and this is just a total retreat with no explanation whatsoever for why they're retreating from this principle. So what's your best guess here? I mean, this seems like this is this could either end up being the biggest, most important thing to happen to electricity markets in decades. It could totally reshape how wholesale electricity markets operate. It could theoretically save a lot of coal and nuclear plants that otherwise could go under. That could raise prices. It could make the economics worse for renewable energy. I mean, it could really have a big impact, or it could be completely impossible to implement and go nowhere, and basically anywhere in between. And it's really hard to gauge right now. Do you have you know, any kind of divining rod that can point us toward what you think is most likely to happen? So my sense is that unless FERC fixes this, which would have to be a very intentional act to say, okay, DOE, we hear what you want to do, and we recognize those goals, but we also recognize that this is not an appropriate starting point, so we have to basically start this process over. Um, you know, I think that's what FERC would have to do if, it, if it's on board with this idea. Um, you know, again, my, my, my sense is that because FERC for 20 plus years has been pushing the competitive markets, and this is so contrary to that, that, there's probably a lot of folks at FERC that think this is the wrong approach. And in fact, you know, FERC has looked at fuel assurance issues, um, you know, not too long ago. Um, and, you know, when they were, when they were contemplating about what to do about fuel assurance, What's in this DOE document is so far off the map from what FERC was even contemplating that it's just not even mentioned in those proceedings. Um, so this is so foreign to what FERC has been doing that I would imagine that there's some resistance right now at FERC for moving this forward. That said, um, you know, the, 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 the perhaps biggest advocate for this farewell might be the current FERC chair. Um, and the FERC chair is a, is a powerful position and could certainly um, push this forward, but he would need ultimately a majority of FERC commissioners to approve this process. So if FERC did sort of restart the process, um, issue a proper proposed rule, um, take a, have a real comment period, um, you know, this, this would take, you know, certainly many months uh, to, to, to finalize. And then, you know, ultimately you would need a majority of FERC commissioners to go along with that. What do you think this tells us about this Department of Energy? I think prior to this rulemaking and this letter on Friday, it, it sort of seemed, at least to me, like the DOE under Rick Perry was going to be somewhat milk toast. You know, they they have made comments, but Rick Rick Perry has come out in favor of sort of everything. He talks about all of the above a lot. He hadn't taken any really strong-handed actions in any particular direction. It sort of seemed like things were just largely going to go along as they had been, perhaps without as much focus on climate change, but apart from that, without a, a big turn in the other direction. And this seems like, um, obviously, a much more heavy-handed, much more aggressive move from DOE. Do you think it pretend something about the future of, of DOE in this administration? Or is this just the one issue that, that the DOE cares about right now? Yeah, my favorite phrase from this administration, which you hear from Rick Perry and EPA Administrator Pruitt and Ryan Zinke, is that markets shouldn't pick winners and losers. 
um, and somehow the prior administration was doing that, and they would this administration should not will not do that. Um, and and this seems to be directly contrary to that principle. Um, you know, in theory, their action is based on this idea of markets inappropriately valuing resilience, but it's 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 there's just so little explanation, so little rationale um, that would lead you to that conclusion. Um, you know, in this document, so. It, it, it's a highly interventionist move for an administration that says they're going to do exactly the opposite of that. Um, I, you know, I, I think um, you know we've been having this conversation for several months now about what the administration might do to prop up coal, um, and you know they seem intent on um, on doing so. And so you know I'm not sure. I, I certainly didn't anticipate this strong of a move. Um, by the Department of Energy and doing something again that normally FERC would be doing in overseeing these electricity markets. So, you know, I, I don't know what other what other moves they might have up their sleeves. This certainly took me by surprise that they made this strong of a move. So if any of the ISOs or RTOs wish to resist this, if the California ISO decides, you know what, I don't like this rule, um, they are regulated by FERC, so presumably have to do generally what FERC asks, but is there anything that they can do to push back? Yeah, so I imagine the RTOs and ISOs are going to be uniformly opposed to this, is my guess. And so they will certainly make their voices heard at FERC, uh, you know, during whatever comment period there is. Um, I think it could be an interesting coalition if they unify in opposition to this. Um, and if they oppose it at FERC, presumably they'll also oppose it in federal court. And I think that'll just be a strong voice, um, you know, to, to, for, for a federal court to see, not that it necessarily means that they'll be able to beat FERC in court, but I think that'll make a strong statement if the markets are uniformly opposed this. I should just mention, though, that um, the rule would not apply to, to ERCOT of Texas because um, it's, it's long been exempt from the Federal Power Act. Right. Okay, so let's just finish off by, by talking about what we need to watch out for now. So this has gone to FERC, um, and with this crazy short timeline. So presumably if something's going to happen here, it's going to happen pretty fast. What should be what should we be watching out for next? What what might you expect to see come out of this next? Yeah, so DOE actually filed this in an existing FERC rulemaking docket. Um, so there was already a rulemaking that has to do with, with how markets uh, establish prices. And for whatever reason, rather than putting this in a new docket, which is where you would normally see uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, the DOE put it in this existing docket. So what you would normally see in this case is a whole bunch of parties. If this were a normal rulemaking, a whole lot of parties would um, just, just be putting in sort of very short notices saying that they intend to comment and they intend to be part of this docket. This is very unusual, though. I expect... Um, that uh, rather than just sort of putting FERC on notice that they're going to comment, uh, we'll see some quick protest to this. And I think some of those will include the procedural uh, arguments that I mentioned, that this this fails to uh, comport with the Federal Power Act or with general administrative procedures that federal agencies have to follow um, under federal law. Um, and, and, you know, I think we'll also see uh, some participants asking FERC to extend the deadline as well. And so, um, you know, again, like, like we said, th this timeline is impossible. And so at the very least, I would expect FERC to extend the deadline for comments. Um, but I, I would also not be surprised if FERC issued some sort of supplemental notice that tried to remedy some of the basic legal problems with what DOE is trying to do here. Got it. Well, as this proceeds, we may have you back on to help us understand what the hell is happening 
a little bit later into the future. But in the meantime, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really illuminating for me, and uh, I feel like I, I understand it like 25% now. So that's that's way up from the 1% I was at an hour ago. So thanks, Ari. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks very much. Ari Pesco is a senior fellow in electricity law at the Harvard Environmental Policy Initiative. I am Shale Khan, the senior vice president at GTM and head of GTM Research. We will be back next week uh, with a live episode that we taped a few weeks ago, an interview with Dick Swanson, the founder of SunPower, about what his founding story sounded like in the early days of solar. Uh, And then we'll be off for a week as Stephen continues to enjoy his newfound married life. And then we'll be back. Thank you for listening in. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations about the energy transition from GTM.